to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. Okay, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. And the last time the message was titled, Truly God's People, with a question mark. So we, we kind of looked at that, um, that question. And, you know, when we go through the Bible, if you, you know, if you teach not just your favorite parts, but you go through the entire scripture, we're going to run into these t- types of kind of situations where it's like a heart check, right? Am I just part of a denomination? Do I call myself a Christian because my parents did? Um, or is I just kind of join this church? Or am I really walking with the Lord? You know, do I have a relationship with the Lord? You know, in John 14, Jesus kind of puts out this lit- litmus test and says that, you know, if you love me, you'll follow my word. If you don't, you won't, right? And it doesn't mean that we're perfect because we're not perfect, but it means that we really do our best to try to follow his word and his work. You know, it's a, we're a work in progress, and it's that kind of relationship that happens, right? So if you didn't get it, you can get it free off the website, and today the message is titled, Entropy Temporarily Reversed. Now, I had a little fun with this, and I was hoping to pique some interest with the title because, you know, this, this idea of entropy is really bound up in the second law of thermodynamics, which covers a lot of things. And, you know, when you look up the definition, whether in the science manual or the, the dictionary, entropy is its disorder, its randomness. It can also be translated as as chaos or uncertainty, depending on the application you're using it. So it is a science term. I apologize. We're doing a little science this morning. Um, You can apply it to the physical sciences. It's actually a term that crosses different uh, disciplines, you know, especially in biology with the advent of the electron microscope, I believe some 30 years after Charles Darwin passed away, we got to see that the cell was a lot more complex than we had thought it was as, as a human race. And uh, so you can see that things move. Mutations don't move towards good. They move towards negative. They move towards disruption. So my application for this morning is now we can kind of, we can jump over those two and move this to a spiritual application. In Romans 5.12, it says, when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and death through sin, and death spread through the entire human race because of this sin condition. So you sort of see a spiritual entropy where there's a, you know, we were designed to live forever, but because of this thing that the human race brought into it, the, you know, you don't necessarily feel it, but when Adam and Eve did what they did, they immediately started to die inside, although they didn't feel it, right? And unfortunately, that has affected, when you read the news and you see what's going on, that explains a lot of what's going on today, especially in American culture, as we move really towards a post-Christian nation. Uh, there was uh, People have been sending me this survey about the percentage of Americans that don't believe in God anymore, and that number is on the rise. So when you push the Prince of Peace out of society, okay, you lack peace. <laughs> and what we see here this morning is what I put was entropy temporarily reversed because Jesus now reverses the death process. So in one particular, there's two situations this morning. One, the person is, is dying, and he reverses that process. And in the second one, the person has died, 
and he's reversed it and brought them back to life. He's resurrected them. And then the question begs, well, why didn't Jesus just do the whole thing with the whole creation and, you know, we don't have to suffer anymore? The answer is very simple. When you look at the scripture, the Lord came the first time to redeem, the, uh, redeem our souls, which is more important, right? Where are we going to spend eternity? Uh, so that happened first. And then in his timetable, a future from now, he will come back and he will restore the physical situation, right? The physical creation. It'll be changed. It'll be redeemed. It won't be like this anymore with all of its problems. Um, and we're going to see a permanent reversal. But for the sake of this morning, we're going to see a temporary reversal of what the Lord did 2,000 years ago. And we're going to see this in two parts. So I'm going to jump in. I'm going to make more of it, make more sense of it as we go on. But uh, verse 1, it says, Now when he, Jesus, concluded all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, right? We just went through this the last few Sundays. He entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, to Jesus, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he, Jesus, should do this for was worthy. It, that's their opinion. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should even enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. So one attitude, the centurion's servant is healed, right? We also see this in Matthew chapter 8. And I feel like I need to go through the background because, you know, if you read it too quickly or you read it along with Matthew's gospel and you're not putting it in perspective, you could have questions. So I want to, you know, I, I like to do background. Um, so what we have here is two delegations that came to see Jesus, right? And you had representatives. So the first delegation is Jewish people, mostly Jewish. They come for the sake of the centurion, who's home with the servant, and they go to Jesus and ask for Jesus to come and heal this, this servant. You know, they, they kind of, I don't know, I think they try to sweeten the pot and say, hey, he's a really good guy, we'd really love it if you come. And I'm paraphrasing here. But understand that Jesus goes because Jesus, he's got the heart of God. He's God the Son. Right? He's compassionate. So that part was man or human's idea of, well, maybe if we could tell him that this guy's really a good guy. See, that's the way the world works. You know, you try to get somebody to do something pro bono, right? You know, you, you talk up the situation and you try to convince that person to give up their time. Jesus did it because he's God. So let's just make sure we make that dichotomy. Uh, before Jesus gets to the house, he's almost at the house and a second delegation the centurions, maybe close friends and family, end up, you know, I mean, this is, this is a big deal. They leave the house, they go to find Jesus, and they basically say, you know, you, you don't, you could just say the word. 
you know, you don't have to, you don't actually have to step foot in the house. And we'll talk about why that is the way it is. So in Matthew's gospel seems to indicate that the centurion came personally to Jesus, while Luke says that he sent representatives. But even today, right, the centurion was a quasi-political position. The centurion can have as much as, if you read Roman uh, history, he could have had as many as 500 soldiers under him, right? He was a a quasi-political figure. Uh, He may go on behalf of the the governor or the ruling person or the emperor and go to another place or another region on that person's behalf. So even the centurion could go as as a representative. And even today, political figures send ambassadors and representatives to come in the name of the person they're representing. So you could hear of a meeting between China and the United States, and it wasn't you know, Xi Jinping and Joe Biden, but it was two representatives that met, and they came with the full force and the authority of the person they're representing. So it's, it's neat. You know, my, listen, I'm not the best Bible teacher, but what I do very well is I do a good background. And that's why I try to, you know, we're talking about 2,000 years ago, different culture, different empire. So I need to fill in those blanks so we get a full picture of what we're dealing with here. So Matthew gives us the main idea, because that was his concern, and why he wrote Matthew's gospel. Luke is a very detail-oriented person, so he gives us more of the details. You know, understanding those two men understands how these gospels can have little nuances to them. Verse 1 through 3 is a very unusual situation. The centurion, you know, if you look up history, if you have that many soldiers under you, and it's a volatile region, and the emperor is always sending you to some out region to fight, you know, the different groups, um, it, he's, he would have been self-reliant. He would have been tough. He probably would have been prideful, right? Uh, and as he did well, he'd work his way up the corporate chain, so to speak, as we say today. But he would get more promotions, more people under him, and more responsibilities, and no doubt more money. However, this one is concerned about his servant's health. Now, let's just let's be real here. When you read Roman history, what the uh, leaders did was, was, it, was wicked. They had slavery. And when they would conquer different regions, they would take the able-bodied men and women and force them into servitude. So this centurion has a slave. And the slave has a health problem. We don't know what it is. If you look up Roman law, you'll find that once the slave, and this is horrible, it's absolutely despicable, right, this pagan government and the rules that they had set forth. But look at how the centurion overcomes that. So the the law said that if a, a slave was no longer useful, they could discard them. They could throw them out. They could have them executed. And there would be no repercussions to the person to the owner, right? Horrible terms here. However, the centurion bucks the culture and he loves his servant. He loves his servant. Now, the Roman soldier could have said, hey, I I had a battle last month and I have a knee injury. Send Jesus to, to help me out. He doesn't ask for anything for himself or his family. He asks for help for his servant, right? And it says something about a person who tries to do things for someone other than themselves. Right? You ever hear the, you listen, social media, if you had one wish, what would you ask for? And people are like, I want to win the Powerball. You know, I want to win the lottery. This guy had one, I don't want to say wish, but something he needed to be granted to him. 
Out of all the things the centurion could have thought of, he's like, this, I want this guy healed. He's suffering. You know, I, I care for him. We've developed a bond. And, you know, it's fitting. We celebrate today Father's Day, but we also celebrate Juneteenth, right? Which was a long overdue emancipation for freedom. And, yeah, amen. And in, in American culture, actually, if you, I'm a big history buff. You look at Roman history, you look at American history in the South, right? You find that there were a, a small group of people, it was sort of a microcosm, who purposely brought slaves into their huge multi-acre farms to pretty much set them free, raise their families, because they saw them as human beings. You know, Oscar Schindler, Schindler's List, he did the same thing. When the Jews were being marginalized and sent to camps, he bought dozens of them. He didn't even need them, but he told the, the government, oh yeah, I need them for my factory. He was saving their lives. So these kind of awesome things happen, and we're reading a story where it also happened. Amen? Now, the centurions were often the mortal enemy. This is a fascinating story. There's so many sub-themes here, because you have a delegation of Jews speaking on behalf of a centurion who was the mortal enemy to many of the Jews because the centurions were seen as a symbol of oppression. Isn't that amazing? There's so much to the story. But I find, and I've seen it so many times, that when you walk with God, you find that even your enemies become brothers and sisters. And that's the beautiful big tent that Jesus provides if you're doing Christianity right. Right? We think about today, people that have cliques or there's war or there's prejudice on any side, that the solution is often a true relationship with the living God. And as I said in my prayer um, in, in the opening, is that you, know, you, you see all the things that are going on in the world and you see that the Prince of Peace has been, I don't know, for new philosophies, kind of pushed out of our culture, certainly in, in, in public life. And we're, we're starting to suffer because of that, because Jesus provides the answer. He provides the answer to all of these societal and sociological problems. Fearful people often tend to stay with, quote, their own, because they're more comfortable that way. But understanding God's Word puts us in a position where we welcome fellowshipping with people that are not like ourselves. And if we're doing it right as Christians, a per God will put people in your life that are different from you, and He's basically instructing you to minister to that person. It doesn't matter if they look like you, or they act like you, or they have the same foods. I find that all the time. I've met so many diverse people based on who, where God has put me in certain situations. Verse 4 through 5, we continue. It says, And when they came to Jesus, this delegation of the Jews, they begged Him earnestly... This is not some, oh, you know, Jesus, could you kind of, if you're in the area. They begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was worthy. For he, so, well, is that, is that the slave? No, because they're, they're describing the centurion. The slave couldn't have done this. For he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. So we find that the centurion now, this remarkable man, is also philanthropic. We see all these good qualities in this person. He had the love for God's people at the time, the Jews. He built a synagogue. And while most centurions would look at the Jews at that time with suspicion because of the uprising, and there were a lot of them, the Jewish delegation begs Jesus to do a favor for the centurion. This is sort of a crazy microcosm of 
bizarro world, and I say that in a good way, where you, you had the Roman government doing its thing, and then you have this kind of bubble where nothing seemed to make sense but in a, a blessing, right? So the centurions would look at the, especially the Jewish zealots and with suspicion. You know, they hide in the shadows and they attack Roman soldiers. So they look at them as they're troublemakers. You know, these people are, they're, they're, they're messing with the Pax Romana. And some of the Jewish people would look again at the soldiers and say they're a symbol of oppression. So you see now both sides have suspicion, there's paranoia in those two groups. But here, these two groups are, are amazingly working together to get this person healed. So, a lot of really neat stuff here. Is it possible the centurion became disillusioned with polytheism of the Greco-Roman uh, pantheon, was seeking the one true God? Did he become a believer? I don't have the answer to that. I'd say probably, but I don't know for sure. However, the man was a work in progress, Right? We use that time some, sometimes in the church, in Christianity. The person is a work in progress. He's moving in the right direction. He's ripe for the things of God. And that's a blessing. And that's a blessing when we can be a part of that and seeing somebody moving in the right direction. Right? We also see that the centurion was humble. The Jewish delegation, arguing on behalf of the centurion, says to Jesus that he's worthy. Actually, only God can determine if someone's worthy or not, but let's go with the account. The Bible records history, whether it's theologically correct or not. This was in their mind. They loved this guy. However, the centurion looked at himself as not worthy. And that's attractive when we see those in power and authority have an attitude of humility. We don't see that that much. We don't see it in politics. We don't see it on the world stage. You know, I'm just looking at the, the fact that Americans are suffering through these price hikes and, you know, some of our politicians have a let them eat cake sort of attitude, you know, just go buy a Tesla. Well, maybe they'll buy one for me because I know I can't afford one of those things. They're cool cars. Uh, but you don't do that to the people you're serving. So here, right, this guy had it right. He didn't look at himself as some, some great person. So this was impressive. Again, when I meet somebody, when I meet someone and, and maybe they walk away and someone goes up to me at a social event and they go, do you, do you know who that was? I'm like, no, who was it? And they tell me that this person had some position in government or whatever. I'm like, wow, what a nice guy. What a nice lady. And I'm like, you're shocked, right? Because it, it tends to build up pride in those positions. So I've had that blessing before to meet people like that and I try to be like that. Um, but the greatest example of humility, right, power under control, or someone who had such incredible power and authority but was humble is Jesus Christ, right? He's the best example of that. The elderly, the women, the children, the oppressed felt very comfortable coming to Jesus. Even in James 4.6, it says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Continuing on, verse 6, Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. More humility. More humility. Right? Uh, the centurion didn't use his power and authority to boss the Jewish people around to go to Jesus or try to boss Jesus around and say, you really need to come here. Right? He was completely humble. 
Maybe he figured, think about this, and again, this is conjecture. Maybe he figured the second delegation went to Jesus, and I love to do this. I love to you know, read, the, you know, read the room, read the, what's going on at the time. Um, is it possible that the centurion maybe thought to himself, well, he is a, he's a young Jewish rabbi, right? Nobody fully knows about the whole God, the Son thing at the time, although he's doing incredible miracles. Maybe, maybe the optics are a problem. Maybe if he shows up under my roof that people will talk and say he defiled themselves by going into the house of a, of a Roman commander. So, and I don't know this. So the centurion gives Jesus sort of an out to heal remotely, right? This is the first uh, Zoom prayer meeting, right? You do it. I'm glad you're laughing. You know, I prepared that. Uh, so, you know, Jesus, just say the word. Doesn't matter that you're a mile, half a mile away, but you say the word and I know he's going to get healed. That's, that's incredibly powerful. Verse 8. So he, he describes, uh, you know, he, he sort of is, is trying to understand Jesus and he's kind of using his own sort of career as a, a parallel, although vastly different. For I'm also a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does this. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Wow. So this centurion has a respect for the sovereignty of God. He also has a profound faith in the things that God can do. And if I could paraphrase what he said to Jesus, I command men. You command everything else in the universe and creation. I'm nothing compared to what you can do. Wow. That's just, you know, it's this character that the man has. But let's just be very clear. Jesus healed everyone, right? Uh, anyone who came to him. So, yes, guy's got great character, but that is not the reason why Jesus did this. Right? Just make that, let's make that clear. Um, he probably healed people, and he went and you know, spent time trying to, you know, whether it was the, the thieves or the tax collectors or the prostitutes, he tried to get them to turn their lives around. He was there for them. Um, he healed many in that, in that community. So it wasn't based on the person's uh, goodness. It was based on the goodness of Jesus Christ. And that's important to know. Verse 10, the servant is healed. The servant is healed. Now, we, we have to say and we have to you know, look at this and, and say, well, Jesus did marvel at the man's face, faith. It was pretty impressive, right? Um, and, and I love that. And, and just to kind of give an idea of what is going on here is that Remember I talked about entropy reversed? I kind of talked about that in the opening. Um, you know, when you look at this, this situation, you know, and we have great medical uh, technology today. We have great trauma centers. Uh, but wherever a person was in that process of death, Jesus was able to bring them back. He was able to reverse everything, often just from a word, often remotely. So this is really an impressive miracle when you look at it. And I just want to encourage you, too, is that one day there will be no more death. Revelation 21, 3 through 4 assures us of that. I read that at funerals. There'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, for the former things have passed away. 
but that is a future occurrence. When? We don't know. We don't set dates here. But I will tell you that everyone sitting here is suffering from bodily entropy. And you might not feel it when you're in your 20s, but once you start to hit your 50s, 60s, and beyond, you say to yourself, yeah, he's definitely right. You know, stuff doesn't work like it used to, you know. Um, I still think the way, uh, well, I still think I could do anything, right? I still have that mindset, but my body tells me pump the brakes. You can't do anything, you know. So, uh, so we all are suffering from this condition, but the cool thing is that the Lord is going to reverse it. And I will say this as well, is that if you don't know Christ, you're also suffering from spiritual entropy, right? And you, you really have to consider Christ as your Savior because he is the key to the afterlife. He's the key to heaven. And it really has to do with that reversal process. And it goes back to Levit- Leviticus 17. And, you know, it's a very legal, very, uh, you know, interesting and scientific process as we look at that. Let me just leave you with this, and we'll go to the next one. Is that, is that um, you know, I was several, several years, not a few years, into my career as a police officer, and I, I kind of see just a little bit of a parallel here. Police, military, they do very similar things. And uh, I was my own god. I mean, I don't know how to say it. It just, it just came out, right? Um, and when we don't know the Lord, and we're young, and we're strong, and we, we just kind of look at ourselves like, that's the perspective we have. I'm going to do this, I'm going to get promoted, I'm going to you know, climb the highest mountain, I'm going to be the best in my field. You know, I was uh, a training officer, uh, young officers would come out of the academy for probably about 13, 14 years, and I would tell them to come, and they came, i tell them to go, and they would go. I tell them to write that report. I tell them to stand behind me as they're fresh and watch me do everything. So I'm, I'm kind of looking at this and I'm like, wow, I just see a parallel there. You know, I was in a field that was very uh, adrenaline, testosterone driven. Um, but it was cool because I like the chase. And I'm just going to say this even before I was a Christian, when I caught the person, I love catching people. And when I catch them, I would be nice to them, right? Because they're human beings. Uh, but I, I just love that kind of chase mentality. And then I start going to a church that teaches the Bible, and after a few months, I, everything started to come full circle. And you know what? I said to myself, you need to submit to him. And one day, I, uh, my wife and I, it was my girlfriend, we were dating at the time, we went forward, and we might, let me tell you something, I would be the first guy through the door of a warrant, I would be, I would be the shield guy when we did our patrol-based uh, you know, emergency response team, I was very, I was a sharpshooter. I was good with all that stuff and, it, and fearless. Joe D, you know, give him the shield. I take that 3A, level 3A shield, have him go through the door. I, I tell my wife now all the things I'm saying, but probably didn't tell her all those things while I was at work. Uh, but when I went forward to receive Jesus, can I tell you something? I still remember that day. My knees were shaking. I was more nervous to be right here looking at, listening to the pastor lead me to Jesus, that I was so nervous, I, I actually, I remember it. And this was well over, more than 25 years ago. I, I held the, the stage. I thought I was going to fall down and pass out. I was terrified. But you know what? What I realized was, I wasn't it. I wasn't the authority. I submitted, that was a real experience, that Jesus, 
I needed to submit to him. If I had to bow my knee and bow my head, I would. So you could see how the heart can totally change, right? No matter, you could be a CEO, and especially if you're in a position of power or authority, sometimes it's harder to make that transition because you wonder what's going to happen after that. Now I have to submit. And when you're, when you're in that position, you don't want to submit to anybody. You don't want to be vulnerable. But let me tell you something, it's worth it. It's worth it. I don't know where I would be today if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. So verse 11 says, Now it happened the day after that, that he went to a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those that carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear, that can also be translated respect, but sure, I'm sure there's some fear mixed in with it. Like, what, what is this, right? <laughs> We've never seen this before. Came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. So two, for this morning's sermon, is a widow's son is resurrected. Now this is unique to Luke's gospel. So again, let me go into some background. Luke was a physician at the time. Certainly medicine in the last 2,000 years has advanced since Dr. Luke was, was on the scene. But he was, again, very detail-oriented. He was a physician. Uh, when there's a sickness, right, and especially this one, he... None of the gospel writers. This is unique to his gospel. He considered death. What is death? And we're, we're in definition mode this morning. Death is the cessation of one or more vital bodily functions necessary to maintain life. How did this son perish? We have no idea. Was it a, a farming accident? Was it hypovolemia due to a wound? Was it hypoxia? Was it apoptosis? Was it... Was an immune response? Was it cytokinesis? Right? Is and you you start to see things when you're in the field. There's on a cellular level, and then it affects the organs, and then it affects the organism, and the organism eventually perishes. But we don't know. Why am I going into this? Because for 25 years I saw this stuff. Right? I was in trauma rooms. You know, I would work, and it would be a, maybe a victim of a crime or a suspect or. Uh, you know, someone, it was, it was an accident and someone got severely injured and I would have to, as an officer, I have to accompany the ambulance to the, you usually would go to Robert Wood Johnson, the trauma center. And I got to see a lot of amazing things, amazing people at work on this person. And once we got to that room and they were all in, they would be, they would make me go outside <laughs> and I could watch through the little window because I wasn't allowed in that room, which is cool. Some people say, Pastor Joe, your perspective on some of this stuff is very unique. Um, but again, these are, this, this whole morning is, is just, I just was thinking about my experiences and what I observed. Um, when, you're, when you watch the trauma room, right, and I'm seeing there's, there's beeps and there's hoses and there's wires and there's LEDs and they're monitoring at the same time when they're working on somebody, blood volume, breathing, brain function, heartbeat. Uh, immune system all at the same time and they can still lose the patient I've seen that and I've seen them bring people back right 
Jesus, with a few words, without you know the defibrillators and all, all the fancy stuff, without the scalpels, Jesus said a few words, and the boy sat up. Now back then they had these sort of uh, open coffins, especially if you weren't wealthy. Uh, they would almost, it would almost be like sort of a wicker, like a, a basket sort of thing, and the person would be laid out and they would carry the person. You know, to us it's a little macabre, right? We have a different embalming system, makes the body look presentable. And uh, so it would sort of been a, a half casket open, uh, taken to the burial site. There'd be a, a procedure, there'd be loved ones with that woman. And Jesus says a few words to the deceased, and, and he gets up. He gets up. Without all the mon- modern equipment, uh, as a first responder, if I would go into a room where somebody was, a victim was, and I saw rigor mortis or liver mortis, I would know that it's too late. But that wouldn't stop Jesus. Depending on how long, and they would try to bury the dead um, quickly because of decay and, and a lot of uh, procedural and cultural reasons. Uh, so he could have had rigor, he could have had liver. Right? And if you would see him, all the blood would have pooled, and what you would see would be extremely pale. It was, it was very depressing. Not only did you lose a loved one, but they don't look the same as when they were alive. Um, but as first responders, we would know it's too late, but not for Jesus. You know, Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in creation, spoke everything into existence. Right? When we look at this, this piece of wood, when we think of our human bodies, when we look at even the invisible air that's in this room, everything is based on an atomic level, right? A-T-O-M, atomic. But where do the atoms come from, right? This is the whole question when people talk about on that end, well, we don't want to believe in God, well, there's a big bang. And then you say, well, where did the elements come from? There's nothingness out in space. Where did those elements come from? He made those elements, so he certainly can organize them and orchestrate them in such a way where somebody who's passed can come back to life. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm so impressed by what Jesus did and being in the community of people that I respect in the emergency services, in the trauma bays and stuff, and they still lose the patience. When I read something like this, I'm like, he's that much more amazing to me. So I'm sorry if I bored you with all the, the details and stuff, but... Um, it's just my, my personal kind of relationship with the Lord. Verses 11 through 12, there's a contrast of crowds. One is celebratory, and there's this kind of collision course with these two crowds. Jesus, right, before this happens, uh, maybe they're talking about the servant who was healed, and that was remarkable, and they're rejoicing, and this funeral procession, and there's a clash of crowds. So one is celebratory, one is mourning. Both are focused on an only son. Right? Jesus, his only begotten son. Um, and then we also see the boy, the only son of this mother. Verse 12, it says, the only son of his mother and she was a widow. So I think we can make an inference that he also was probably the only child. Now this mother has to bury him. Back then, if a dad died, the oldest child, especially the son, was tasked to care for his mother. He would often take his mom into his home, care for her needs physically, um, emotionally, financially. But here he's deceased. It's a desperate situation. Now, not only is she grieving her son, but 
I think we could probably say that it's reasonable to assume that she might be asking herself when all these people leave and he's buried, what am I going to do now? Where am I going to live? How am I going to make it? See, the Roman Empire at the time provides some things, usually for entertainment. It was sort of free from the government. But they didn't help people who were in desperate situations. That was for your family. That was for you know, your loved ones. So this woman now has nothing. And she, again, it would only make sense, competing thoughts, I miss my son. But where am I going to go after this? And we can ask the same questions, can't we, when a trial happens today? We can say, what's going to happen? What's going to happen tomorrow? Right? They say, well, they don't say it's actually a fact and the statistics on insomnia in the United States, how the, the lack of sleep the insomnia rate is incredibly high. It's at an alarming level in this country and its culture. We live in such a fast-paced society. We live in a, uh, a very empty and plastic society. We live in a society where stress is killing Americans. We should be living a long time with all the medical stuff that we have and the, and the advances we're making, but lack of sleep, stress, insomnia. So, and what do people do? You know, laying in bed two, three in the morning and they're thinking about five, ten different things and they can't fall back to sleep. And when, you, when there's a trauma in your life, it's even worse. When I get into a situation where it's really quiet and I start thinking things, I just, you know, I go back to the Word. What does your Word say, Lord? And um, I remember not that long ago, I, I woke up, it was four in the morning and there was a few pressing things, and I'm like, you know what, Lord? i got to practice what I preach. So I'm like, you, you have my life in your hands. And I went back to sleep. <laughs> so I'm like, the, Lord, the Lord's going to deal with this. He's, he's had me up to this point. He's not going to leave me nor forsake me. And I've got to tell you that these two crowds coming in contact, I think it was a divine appointment. I don't think it was by accident. And you might be, be here this morning. I might be saying some things. Maybe you're new to the church and you're struggling with some things. And it's also not a coincidence. I can't read your minds. Only God can do that. But if you've come in here and you're dealing with some issues, you know what? Don't just look at this as some story that happened 2,000 years ago. That same God wants to minister to you as well as he ministered to those people and those people in the Old Testament. He didn't forget about us. right? So consider that. 13. It says, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. So I'm guessing, again, it's conjecture that he, you know, he, he, the two crowds meet, he's there, maybe not everybody understands who he is. Jesus knows the situation immediately. And maybe he touches the coffin, um, maybe does some things to signal to the people, stop. Right? So he does that, and then he says, young man, I say to you, arise. The compassion of Christ. The compassion of God. Nothing's changed 2,000 years later. You know, when we're at our deepest, darkest time, the Lord's there for us. He sees every tear that falls he knows every stressful situation we're involved in. Give it to him. Right? Give it to him. Verse 15. Last two verses. And he who was dead sat up and began to speak. You know, I've had uh, probably about maybe, I don't know, 10 or so times that they've put me under for different surgeries, foot, all stupid stuff. 
and uh, it's you know you you wake up and you're groggy and the anesthesia has to wear off you know and then you got the swelling and then you go for physical therapy even after a great surgeon does a great work and and I love surgeons you know what I'm saying especially good ones that there's a process of healing he says what he says and the kid sits up and he's starting to talk he probably was wondering what he was doing sitting in that basket and why everybody was holding him up and he probably got down and and the, the mourners are like well, what do we do now this is supposed to be a funeral right could you imagine that um, this is a miracle. And what happens is that not only does he heal the mother's heart where she gets her son back, but he also answers the other problems too that we talked about. Now the boy can grow up and now uh, he could care for his mother as she gets older and he gets stronger. So sometimes when God answers prayers, he, he might solve other problems that we didn't even realize. And many times, like here, Jesus reassures before he does the miracle. Do you realize that he said to her, do not weep? When he said to her, do not weep, the boy was still laying down, right? And sometimes when he would deal and interact with people, they would be confused. Maybe her first thought, and I don't know this to be a fact, was, you don't want me to cry. Look at where my son is. But sometimes, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, he, he wants to see, he, he wants to just test our faith. He wants to build our faith. You know, uh, when Lazarus died, he was, he was gone for four days. Decomposition set in. And he's ministering to, to the sisters. And there's confusion among the sisters. They see, well, I see this situation. And then he calls Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come forth. So sometimes he speaks to us and encourages us before he does the miracle. The sermon is titled, Entropy Temporarily Reversed. For the centurion servant, the process of death was reversed. It was a process. The Lord stopped it. He reversed it. For the widow's son, Jesus reversed death itself. So that was it, cessation of life. Right? Where is the, the soul? What happened? Jesus calls him back. Right? He sits up in the coffin. He starts talking. But let me just impress this upon you, is that we follow the Prince of Life. We follow the Prince of Peace. Jesus is called dozens of names in the Old Testament and the New Testament because he embodies so many roles. Right? The Holy Spirit is the encourager. The Holy Spirit is the helper. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. And folks, just like in Genesis, when they were told, the day that you do this, the day you bring sin into the world, you'll die. They didn't feel it. They just went on like every other day. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we now have eternal life, but we don't feel it, do we? When I went up to receive Jesus that almost three decades ago, the only thing I felt was my adrenaline and my knees knocking. You know, I received Jesus and you know, I didn't see a bright light. I didn't see the heavens open. I didn't feel uh, a tingling. 
But as time went on, I realized I was a different person. So that's an amazing thing. You don't necessarily feel it, but it's a fact. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that there's some really good things that are happening in, in the future, right? But are you in Christ? This world, I, I was just looking at a, a show about Google that they created supposedly AI that has, it's sentient now. So their computers, uh, not only they have art artificial intelligence, but they, they have a self-awareness of existence. And then uh, there was a, a biotech entrepreneur that said, that's a scary time. Because, you know, it's funny, the guy wasn't a Christian. He goes, human beings have a soul. The AI robots don't have souls. This has been a concern. I forget his name. I don't want to butcher it. And also, uh, Elon Musk had talked about this too. They made movies about this stuff. So here we are. We're fiddling with things as human beings that we shouldn't be fiddling with. God gave us a soul. God gave us a conscience. That's something that you can't measure. You could make a, a robot. You could put uh, organs in it. You could make it like better than any person. But they're still going to lack what God has given his creation. So folks, I want to encourage you is that the world is going into a dark place, spiritually dark place. But Christ is the light. And he wants as many people to come on board with him as possible. Because in the end, there will be a reckoning. been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.